Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Sports Science and Research at the Gold Coast Suns, John Bartlett. Thanks for tuning in to episode 220 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So with this officially going live two days after Christmas, I do hope you had a good Christmas. And if you're listening to this weeks and weeks and months and months after Christmas, I still hope you had a good Christmas. Um, so in this episode, we discuss um, lots of things with John, given his unique position with one foot in academia and one foot in professional uh, in professional sport in, in, in AFL. So integrating research into elite sport is, a, is a, an obvious um, topic that we chatted about. Then we discussed something that kind of goes kind of opposite to what John does, and that's developing the softer skills in pro sport, but integrating that with the research side of things. Then we finished off with a chat around big data, athlete management systems, um, train load predictions, and something that John is very familiar with, with RPEs. So really interesting chat with John. Um, hope you enjoy it. I'm sure you will. Um, tons of great information in this from someone who's in a very unique position, like I said before, with a foot in the academia camp and the foot in, um, in the applied setting. So hope you enjoy this chat with John. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pace Performance Podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU, who are a world-leading inertial sensor and software platform which is able to quantify body movement and workload metrics in the field. So iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app solution for lower limb load monitoring and has been used successfully by practitioners to optimize return to play for running base sports predominantly. So unlike GPS, IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two really small synchronized high frequency tibial worn sensors. And these sensors can quantify three dimensional force of every step an athlete takes, precise left and right limb load asymmetry and cumulative bone load. So iMeasureU was founded by leading biomechanist Dr. Tor Bazir and was acquired by Vicon last year in 2017. So iMeasureU works with military, Olympic, pro and collegiate coaches and counts the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, Philadelphia 76ers and Harvard University as some of their clients. So if you'd like to get to know a little bit more about iMeasureU, head over to the website which is iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with John Bartlett. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening, I'm delighted to welcome John Bartlett, who is the Head of Sports Science and Research at the Gold Coast Suns. So welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. So I've had my cup of tea. Well, I've got my cup of tea ready. I've smashed the biscuits already so that they're done. But really looking forward to having a chat and um, and going through um, some interesting stuff. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a bit of a background on yourself and how you ended up on the Gold Coast. Yeah, no worries. So um, also you can probably tell from my accent somewhat that I'm, I'm from the UK originally. Um, did my undergraduate and my PhD in Liverpool at John Moores University. Um, finished my undergrad over 10 years ago now, which seems bizarre. 
uh, finished my PhD six years ago. Um, I then, off the back of that, I obtained a job um, with the England national soccer teams um, as part of a sort of industry-funded postdoc, again through uh, John Morse, University of Liverpool. Um, it was probably more of an applied position, really, than a than a research post. Um, gained some some really quality skills there um, from both, obviously working working with different age groups um, on camp, um, the World Cup in Turkey with the under twenties, different European Championships as well, um, and obviously learned learned somewhat the the academic system as well. Um, being, being post PhD, um, and then a, a job came up in Melbourne, um, which was which was a an industry sort of co-funded research and applied position working in uh, Australian rules football. Um, admittedly, I'd never seen a game of AFL before before even applying for the job, um, and then I was successful with that. So uh, I moved over to to Melbourne in March of twenty fourteen. Um, and then embedded myself straight into the Western Bulldogs, um, set about a, a research program, um, obtained a couple of PhD students, um, and I think um, this, there's a bit of work already come out but will come out as well on, on areas of sleep and concurrent training that I've, I've been heavily involved in. Um, and then, and then a, a couple of years ago, um, I'll just say a couple of years ago now, a position came up with the with the Gold Coast Suns um, as as sort of leading up the sports science program um, and setting up a partnership with the university to set up a, a research model as well. Um, so lucky to to keep an adjunct research position at Victoria University as part of that that, that PhD supervision role. Um, set up a, a new adjuncts associate professor position with Bond, and obviously um, working day to day with the Gold Coast Suns. Did you ever think about staying in academia full time, or was it always the plan to have your foot in both a foot in both camps? Yeah, it's a great question, and a question I, I quite often get asked actually. Um, which one I prefer, and if I'd go back into academia full time, or if I prefer sport full time. Um, I think I think the answer really is that I love I love a foot in both camps, um, and I love I love the day to day stuff that sport brings. I love the highs and lows. It's it's a very changing or challenging um, stimulus day to day. There's there's no one day the same. Um, but then I like that side of academia as well um, to keep keep evolving, keep improving, uh, keep keep developing. Um, and I love that part of, of of developing students as well, and and working in research. So I think um, if it if it's if you're quite cute about it, you you can do both quite effectively, um, despite both almost becoming somewhat two full time positions. So I don't know. Really, it's, I'm, I'm I'm really happy in the roles. That I that I currently um, undertake, um, and and long may it continue. Nice. And I always thought because of your link with John Moores that you were from Liverpool, but you're not from Liverpool, are you? No, I'm a bit of a nomad, really. Um, <laughs> I was actually born in London. Um, I moved pretty quickly to Yorkshire um, before then spending. Where a few in Yorkshire years did you live? Um, Whitby. Um, so that was, was yeah. So that's when I was a, a, a tiny little kid. Um, spent a few years in Denmark, and then before moving to the southwest, where I, was, uh, I lived just outside of Bath. Um, so I went to school. All my school years were, were in Bath, or just out, just outside of there. And then I moved to Liverpool for for university, where I spent nine years before moving to Australia. So. Um, I've got family in Liverpool, partners from Liverpool, her family from Liverpool, so I sort of say that's home now, really. Nice. So we're going to focus the chat mainly around um, around the research model in elite sport. It'd be great to get a bit of a an overview of maybe maybe start when you first came over to to Melbourne and what that looked like, and then 
maybe transition over to what your you've created or looking to create or helped create um, on the Gold Coast. So maybe start off in Melbourne, maybe what that system looked like, and then we'll transition over to present day. Yeah, okay. Um, well, the the job that I that I applied for was was obviously this co co funded industry based sort of um, research fellowship, if if you like, um, which was fifty fifty split between the university and the club. Uh, you're employed by the by the university, and they embed you back into the into the club as a sports scientist. Um, so the structure around that sort of partnership was really strong. Um, Victoria University is a, is a major partner of, of the Western Bulldogs. Um, and so it, it was, it, there's a lot of, um, I guess, um, support high at the chain with that position. Um, and I'd work four four days a week at least in the club, uh, and then spend a day a week at at the, at the university. Um, but then, part and part part of the role, not not only the applied part, providing the support to to players and, and staff, etc., was was this development of a research sort of program aimed to to sort of answer questions that that the club had um, in terms of whether it's the their playing group or some areas of might be training monitoring or in our case sleep that that we just didn't know um and so this in, in this idea of an embedded sort of phd model within applied sport um we, we, was a centerpiece of, of that program um so those students had had both applied roles but also obviously their research component as well as part of their phd um and also have an experience somewhat when I did my PhD where I had my um combined roles with, with Liverpool and then obviously the university and then with the England national teams. Um sort of set me set me up and bode well for for sort of being quite effective there. So um I I guess this concept of research within sport is 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 sometimes overlooked and 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 thought about more about our research. It's just about publishing papers or or presenting at conferences um, or producing theses. But it's also that internal component as well. So just because there's a research structure or research framework uh, embedded within a sports science department, it's not necessarily just just that external aspect. It's it's about that day to day information that's that's produced. Um, to inform decisions and inform the uh, the day to day program, um, so that's I learned also a lot of ins and outs and 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 what was key about sort of setting up those partnerships um, and and some of the the technicalities and intricacies of that um, before they make a move up up to the Gold Coast, where um, sort of one of my big remits was to try and set up on a smaller scale because obviously. The money wasn't there that the VU and the Bulldogs had, um, but but to set up a research model that was both internal and and obviously a benefit to the academic partner as well. Nice. So this is becoming a lot more. People are becoming a lot more vocal about this because it's going on um, more and more. We had Ben Jones on from Leeds Beckett, who obviously does a fantastic job in uh, rugby league and rugby union at, at Rhinos and and Carnegie. But what does it actually look like? Data, like in terms of staffing, in terms of who's in charge of what aspect of what goes on, what does that actually look like at Gold Coast at the minute, or what? Do you, and what do you want it to look like in the future if that's not quite where you are at the minute? Yeah, it's it's probably that sort of utopian type of question, really. Um, I think I think Ben's done an amazing job um, with, with with league and union. Um, Adelaide's up there, um, and also Ben. Ben's also published a really nice paper too, um, in terms of sort of this embedded research framework within sport, um, and obviously stealing, stealing, stealing a little bit from Ben. There's obviously these three, three sort of um, elements to to what a research model in sport looks like. And there's a, there's a researcher, there's a researcher slash practitioner, and then there's the practitioner. 
Um, and I, I think they work along some sort of continuum somewhat, um, that they're very connected um, and interrelated. Um, and I think if I'm thinking about what it looks like um, here with, with the Suns, it's, it's about having a, a common understanding about, okay, what's our expectations within the club? And what's what's the academic institutions under uh, expectations? Um, I think a critical part of that is sort of that that relationship of or, or the or the PhD model. Um, and within sort of a couple of months, when I first arrived, I set about setting up a couple of PhD uh, PhD positions within the club, um, which which Fergus O'Connor and and Dean Ritchie. Um, undertook um since then dean's become a full-time member of the club whilst finishing his phd and and and, and ferg continues to to evolve his, his phd within the club um and roll those sort of day-to-day -day things out of his out of his phd with into the program um obviously we've just just obtained heidi heidi thornton from the knights as well who did a similar thing there um and so i in terms of what I think moving forward is it's just about those day-to-day -day processes and systems becoming a sort of automated somewhat that they produce that information daily that helps both staff and athletes um, improve uh, in, in whatever way that is. Uh, and that's what I see our, our role is. It's, it's helping them do their job better, um, help them develop. Um, and I think really having that common understanding um, about what what it is that we we can do for them. So, in terms of um, research, getting a lot of hammer because of how long it takes to produce a paper. But how, so, with, with that in mind, how is the how is how are quick wins made? So, because obviously week to week, that's what the guys at the Suns are judged on, results. But obviously research moves pretty slow. So how are you combining them two scenarios? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great question. Um, someone said to me in the, in the past, does, does research actually lead to more wins on the board uh, for the team? And, you know, it's so hard to put a value and a measure on, on this type of work. Um, but I, I think essentially that it's, it, it's about having five key steps. I think, um, the first one is, is what the actual question is. Um, and I'll say that question is, is and should, uh, be, be developed, um, by that industry partner. Now it could be the coach, it could be a high performance manager, it could be, it could be a physio, it could be a doctor. It, it could actually be a player asking a question. It's like, actually, we don't know anything about that. Um, but I think if the question comes from there, then it means it's something that's not known already. Um, and then the second part of that, that process is, is that data collection piece. Um, now, I think the, this is a stage that's a given, that you just collect data and it might be GPS, it might be RPE, it could be players' wellness, it could be their morning screening reports, it could be um, it could be hormonal-based stuff, it could be saliva, whatever it is. But what I find is the most effective means to having a program that produces information um, is is embedded in embedding that process into the day-to-day -day program. Um, so it's seamless. It doesn't feel as if it's added on. It doesn't feel as if as if it's a um, uh, what am I trying to say? Sort of something that's extra that's we don't really know what the value is. Um, oh, and so, I understand. Yeah. Go on. Sorry. I was going to say yeah. I understand what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think being being able to embed that into your day to day uh, systems then helps that sort of and and Aaron Coots. Uh, propose it back in 2016 in, in an editorial uh, about this sort of fast versus slow um, process around a practitioner, a practitioner versus researcher. And I think by embedding those processes within your day-to-day -day, as a sort of research practitioner or even a practitioner 
helps you then get fat, quick answers, fast answers. Um, and then the, the slow stuff comes comes later. But essentially then that third part is then the, the analysis um, uh, stage. And, and if, we, if we think about what analysis is um, and, and how successful um, it is, then it's, it's, it's based on how, how clearly it can be translated. Um, and so I think, and probably how quickly as well, right? So if you think of it in that way, it's about turning that raw data into just pure information, first and foremost. And the most simple um, example I can think of is just turning raw GPS inf- data, which is in a spreadsheet, into a GPS training report for that day. Um, now, in the in the long run, that that information is likely to lead to some sort of training monitoring um, manuscript or paper, if 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 that's the purpose. Um, but essentially, that information in the last, let's say, five ten years has become a centerpiece of sports science research. Um, but it's an, it's an embedded day to day process within it, the sporting organisation. Um, the next steps then uh, are, the, are the conversion of that information um, in, into knowledge, um, which which this is the, what then adds that value. So let's just say, for example, um, we have a, a question. It's going to take six to twelve months. Um, those processes, in order to collect information and just give a snapshot of what's happening daily, is embedded within a program. But after six to twelve months when that sort of rigor and scientific sort of analysis has taken place, then the, the underlying sort of answer uh, to, that, to that question is then rolled into the program. Okay, for example, let's just say in relation to uh, Ferg's PhD, we want to know what the role of solar radiation and UV exposure is on, on training and competition performance um, and if it impacts recovery. Now, if we embed those, those processes in day-to-day, um, in understanding what this environment is and also the responses to the players in, re- in relation to their training. Um, we provide that real-time feedback to the players. Okay, this is how you're responding. Um, it was 32 degrees with X amount of watts um, of, of UV exposure, etc. Um, this is how you responded. That helps us then develop our program. That's that sort of quick, quick thinking piece. Um, and then the bigger analysis part comes later. Um, and then it just moves on to that sort of piece about how then you manage that knowledge, right? So when we think about managing knowledge within an organization, it's about that process of creating the sharing, the using, um, and the managing of that information. Um, and, the, and the main purpose is about how ensuring that the right information is delivered to, that, to the right person um, to inform their decision-making. Uh, and I go back again, when it's embedded into those day-to-day processes and systems, that normally means there's a structure in place to help then inform that decision. Um, and then the final step is that dissemination or that knowledge transfer. Um, so you've already managed, been able to manage that information effectively and you've built a framework around being able to manage that and then you've got some sort of um, forum in order to uh, transfer that knowledge um, and I, I think this is probably a, a step where the, the system may break down um, because I think it's a shared responsibility between that person who's doing doing the work and the recipient who needs the work um, and I think there's five steps is there's um, a really it's, it's um, there's a book it's been um, published back in 1948 now called uh, The Communication of Ideas. Um, and there's this principle or concept called persuasive communications. And essentially it's, it's related to five, five types of uh, ways of being able to communicate knowledge. Um, and it relates to the source of that communication, the message to be communicated, the channel of that communication, the characteristics of the audience or the recipient, and the setting in which you you um, provide that information. And I think those those really sort of set up a framework by which researchers and practitioners can really think about in order to, to maintain a successful 
um, process by which you get information um, daily and routinely and weekly and monthly, which then informs the day-to-day programs. And then obviously there's that endpoint, which is quite often that external external piece, whether it's a conference communication, whether it's a publication or whether it's a thesis. So going back to that example of Fergus's PhD, because you're giving that feedback from the data that's collected daily um, on, on that's going towards a bigger picture of his data collection and therefore his, his research, are you able to, at that point, uh, communicate confidently the conclusions or are you, are you kind of holding that back because we're not towards the latter end of this process of, of, of the, of the steps that you've just mentioned, or are you still able to give firm conclusions as you go along, but kind of build the bigger picture? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and we actually had this conversation yesterday about, um, so drip feeding that information into the program. So um, when's the right time to it to sort of start providing that new information, new knowledge? Is it is it straight away when you have your first first observations, or do you need the next set of observations um, to become meaningful? Um, because I, I've seen it, I've seen in the past that um, someone will go to a conference that present probably two thirds of what a study is. Um, six months later, the manuscript comes out. They've got double the numbers, but the the results are the opposite. Um, and so, the, the the critical piece is sort of understanding, um, uh, and you will be able to understand sort of by the data you're getting if it's if it's extremely variable in the response. Um, and that obviously comes down to that individual and how the individuals respond. But if it's extremely variable, then it's likely to be very dependent on on individuals and you can't really go too too early but if you're starting to get a trend that's routinely happening you start to drip feed and start providing some sort of information um, and that's where that communication piece comes in and, and that relationship that you have with colleagues and and other staff and etc to go hey this is what we're sort of trying to start and find um still a bit a bit to go yet but this is what we think is probably likely happening um but then if it's completely opposite, it's just about sort of going, well, actually, we're probably wrong um, for whatever reason. And um, I guess that's that's the whole reason behind sort of the, the slower stuff is to really understand why why that sort of happens. Um, again, it's even a bit very similar for Dean's PhD as well. Uh, we've embedded his PhD program you know, in relation to concurrent training and understanding what players do on the morning um on the pitch and how that relates to then their performance in the gym in the afternoon um is is there a sort of a cutoff point in terms of i know volume um of distance run or high speed running or or whatever they do in the morning on the field how does that relate in terms of of can they lift more can they can they lift heavier in the afternoon and how does that actually feed into sort of gaining mass um, getting stronger, etc. So, like, and that's something um, it's really hard to within a week to go. Yet yeah, they've done twelve k today, and they've only been able to lift seventy percent of what they prescribed. Now that might be related to past load, and they've got an accumulation of load. It might not have any relation to what they've done that morning. Um, they might actually be modified on the basis of being an injury risk full full stop. So. Those sort of things take a little bit longer, um, but knowing the outcome and communicating that message, I think, is the most important part. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with John, as per usual. So in part two, we discuss more around the soft skills, developing those soft skills in an applied setting, and how that can be transferred into that relationship with the uh, with with academia. Then we finish off with a chat around big data, athlete management systems, um, doing a due diligence process with either developing your own athlete management system, which a lot of people are choosing to do, or actually purchasing one off the shelf or a combination of the, of the two. Then we discuss train load predictions and RPE, which John knows extremely well. But just before we do get into part two with John, I just want to say a massive thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. 
So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes uh, a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're gonna undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ready band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So also sponsoring today's podcast is St. Mary's University. So St. Mary's is internationally renowned as a leader in strength and conditioning education and it was the first UK institution to offer an undergraduate degree in strength and conditioning and its master's programme which I have been through personally and would highly recommend was the first part-time distance learning strength and conditioning course in the UK. And it's the emphasis on the development of coaching skills and relevance of theory to practice which makes St Mary's stand out from the other courses that are out there. So both uh, undergraduate and postgraduate courses are delivered in the purpose-built state-of-the-art performance education centre and anyone that's been to St Mary's will know what a fantastic uh, facility that is and is taught by staff that are highly experienced coaches and expert sports scientists. And one thing that students are really on the lookout for now is universities' links with uh, professional sport, and that's definitely something that St Mary's has with their links with multiple football clubs across London in Chelsea, Crystal Palace, Fulham, but also uh, London Irish in rugby and Sutton Tennis Academy. They also embed students within the Royal Ballet Company and Royal Ballet School in London. And this obviously helps students stop saying uh, necessary coaching experience to maximize their chances of gaining employment post-graduation. So in addition to the strength and conditioning courses, they offer both undergraduate and postgraduate programs in physiology and sports rehab. But if you're interested in getting to know more about the course at St. Mary's, make sure you visit their website, uh, which is stmarys.ac.uk forward slash courses. So just, just moving on to one of the other things that we wanted to discuss, and that was probably along the same lines in terms of the communication and, and that side of things. And it's something that's getting a lot more press from, from various um, corners of the industry. But developing the softer skills in pro sport, and there's, there's a lot of um, Excel templates and, and things being developed and shared on on social media and on websites and stuff but that's sort them softer skills let's have a little chat around that and why you think that side is so important and how your experiences um have allowed you to develop that and see the really see the benefit and i suppose we've, we've chatted about it or you've chatted about it quite a bit already but it'd be good just to get that this in particular the these softer skills and why they're so important and um how they've kind of helped you uh, along the way in your career so far? Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, I think I've had this conversation with, with other, others in the past, um, both internally, where we are now, but also other places. And what I find um, is that, let's just say you get students in um, or a student uh, on a placement. Um, it could be six months, it could be 12 months, or it could even be new natural graduate um, position um, that you're advertising for. The, the, the actual technical skill sets and um, the knowledge in which these people sort of have is never an issue because those are the fundamental parts of the programs that are taught um, and developed. Um, but it's probably those softer skills which, which aren't, I guess, systematically and and probably developed uh, in some way it's sort of just assumed that those those skills are going to develop somewhat regardless 
Um, and it, I've actually been g- g- giving this some thought over the last last little while about what I think some of the key skills um, set aside from the technical sort of parts, whether it's having a, having a molecular understanding of training adaptation or how we how we adapt to training or how we how we prescribe exercise plans. I think being able to be a critical thinker um, and have that attention to detail is one. Um, the communication, as I've mentioned to you before, um, both written and verbal, is is critical. Um, and f- for whatever re- reason, I'm not sure whether those communication skills are, are worse now or, or 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 I'm just becoming sort of, you know, more embedded within the program now, so it's different. I'm not sure. Um, but obviously there's this big emergence of social media now, so there's a lot more behind a computer or behind a, an app or behind a, a phone as opposed to in person. Um, obviously the technology sort of emerges as well. That may play a role. Um, next one is about relationship building and being able to, to, to develop relationships and effective relationships. Um, and then I think... The other piece is about reflection, and and, and this might actually um, underpin a, a lot of it. Is that if I think back to my undergrad degree, I, I did a heap of um, reflective practice as part as actual assignments, and so understanding and learning the the, the theory of uh, reflective practice, and then actually having to then reflect on certain moments or experiences, whether it's in placements, whether whatever it might be. Um, and I, I, that then makes you sort of informally reflect quite a lot, whether it's daily, whether it's every so often, whether it's only just on events that you think you need to sort of reflect on. Um, but in the last, I'd say, two to three to four years, I've not seen a lot of reflection done. Um and it might be because I, I'm not as in tune with 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 the with the curriculum in which is being taught on on, on undergraduate programs and uh, etc. But um, I think this is critical to sort of that um, that learning sort of concept, constantly being developing, constantly wanting to learn and get better, and um, never being happy with, with where you're at. And um, those things, I think, then really sort of coincide and complement and the technical skills that 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 um that people come with um and then probably the the final piece of that is about um this, it's not even a concept it's it's a, it's a real thing about emotional intelligence um and it's only until i've worked in sport full time that really you start getting this grasp and idea of what emotional intelligence is um now this is definitely not anything that's learned i don't think is part of a uh, an undergraduate nor postgraduate program. Um, it's obviously more more associated with sort of psychology, um, sort of leadership and cultural stuff. But there's some good evidence starting to to show now that higher levels of both trait and um, emotional intelligence ability leads to high performance. Whether that's for athletes, whether that's for high performance staff, whether that's for coaches. Um, it's something that can be trained uh, at least to greatest leadership capabilities um, but ultimately understanding every sort of action words conversation etc you have and the way you, you act day in day out how that affects others and how others then behave and act and, and respond uh, I think is critical to someone's development so I think these, these sort of themes need to be um, integral um, and and complementary to all sort of the, the technical pieces that that are within programs that that graduates are learning, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Is when you come to critical thinking, is that something that can be taught? Is that something that is taught or attempted to be taught in undergrad, postgrad, um, yeah, schemes? Uh, is that is or is that something that comes quite naturally? Oh, I, th- I think it's a bit of both, really. Um, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be honest. I was I was quite poor at undergrad level. I scraped through with a two one, 
about 62%, I think I scraped through with, um, because that, that style of learning wasn't, wasn't great for me. And then I established myself within research and, and sort of found this passion for research, which led me to my PhD. And a, a key thing about research is being able to be a critical thinker. Um, and sort of un- uncover or identify sort of areas for for, for development somewhat um, or, or that can be done better. Now, also, you know, in a research space, that's about identifying, okay, what's the gaps in the literature? What don't we know? And then how can we then embed or put in a program to try and understand that better? Um, so, but it might be some stuff to do with problem solving. Um, and I think these things can be developed. Um, but it's about that sort of mindset of that person, um, enabling that to be an area that they can grow and understanding what critical thinking is and problem solving is, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. So one thing I want to chat to you about just before I let you go for the next 10 or 15 minutes is athlete management systems. So obviously multiple streams of data that people are collecting from RPEs to GPS to hydration to everything else in between. And people are gravitating towards athlete management systems. And there's obviously so many out there. In terms of your experience with athlete management systems, and as we spoke up before, please feel free to mention people, not mention people like brand names or that kind of stuff. Um, but in terms of that them systems, what would you be looking for from a person in your position, what that system can do, and almost like a bit of a due diligence process that you may go through if you are yeah. looking for an AMS? Yeah, no worries. Well, I think um, I think that there's obviously this abundance of, of data available now for us um, within sport, and that's probably been a big trigger for sort of the integration and development of these of these AMS systems, I think. Um, I think probably one of the biggest limitations is that because because data is being more associated with sort of high performance, whether it's sports science or whether it's medical, um, the systems are, are sort of slanted towards being more for high performance as opposed to um, a whole of, I, don't, I guess, a football operation, if you like. Um so by, by by that I mean something that's that's really easy to use, uh, customizable, visually attractive, easy to navigate, um, easily train people up for for coaching, for performance analysis, uh, for welfare, um, for scheduling, um, for sports science, for medical, um, for S and C. So I think um, probably the biggest limitation is. In the field, and I'm, I'm not talking about any a, a, any particular um, system at all. It's just I think in general is that it's probably that lack of really um, whole a whole of football operation sort of ownership. Um, and, and I guess it always comes back to what the actual needs and wants of a of a particular organisation uh, are. So if if it is only related to a sports science operational sort of process, then that, that's fine. And the, the, there's a number of systems out there already that can be sort of uh, customized somewhat for their needs. Um, but at the same time, I, I know I know there's one or two other um, clubs at the moment who are starting to build their own, uh, just on the basis that current systems don't do what they they want them to do, um, and they feel the feel the need to to build their own. Um, and again, it just comes down to that specific want and need and and what they want to do so do you think that will i know it's happening like you say it's happening more and more that people are actually building their own. I, I don't know obviously i've not been through that process i don't know the costs and all that kind of thing and who you'd actually have to involve to build something like that but do you do you think people will be more inclined to do that rather than get something off the shelf given the way the industry seems to be going? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it, it probably comes down to uh, two things. One is uh, the skill set within the organisation and, and is there somebody with that skill set um, that, that, that can do that role? Um, and then the second part is then the time 
uh, required in order to do it. So um, if you haven't got that, that person with a skill set but they might have the ideas, then it's about sort of partnering up with somebody um, who, who can do it. Um, and then if we think about that, high performance sport, um, and I always go back to, to Aaron Coots' editorial that he wrote, I think back in 2016 now, about um, working fast and working slow. If, you, if you're employed in sport, um, there's probably not too many people with the sort of the, the position description that allows the time to, to develop a system. Uh, it takes a lot of time. So, um, yeah, I think, again, just comes back to this, the particular organisation um have they got the person in house that go you know what i can i can do something better or i can do something better for us um or they might not and they go and they go and get something off the shelf and then they can obtain then the the expertise of of, of the uh of the actual organization that they partner with so in terms of someone in your role what would be i know you've mentioned a couple of um qualities that you'd be looking from such a system but what would be your kind of number one number two be for when you go through that due diligence process or even if you made one yourself what would be the first two things you'd want to tick off yeah i think um having organization wide capabilities is probably the first one Mm -hmm. um in my experience what one of the things that is is a limiting factor to the use of these platforms across sort of organization wide is is there's no sort of reference point to go back to um there's there's uh this perceive or this perception of that there's just easier ways to do things or people have their own i guess um ways they want to continue sort of communicating and uh sharing information so I think having something that has organization-wide capabilities and that reference point um, could be something like a, ske- a scheduling system, uh, a really intuitive, uh, visually attractive, um, easy to navigate sort of scheduling system, um, which then multiple different st- stakeholders within sort of your, your, your department can, can reference off and use the, uh, moving forward. Um, and then probably the one after that is then being able to then customize it specific to your needs. Um, or when I say your needs in terms of those, those different stakeholders, whether it's medical, whether it's coaching, uh, where, whether it's welfare. So those are probably my two biggest things. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, so one thing kind of leading on from that is something that I touched on. Well, Sam touched on, Sam Robertson touched on in quite a lot of detail in a previous podcast and that was train load predictions and using machine learning to be able to do that just want to give us your kind of general thoughts on that area given that it's getting a little well a lot more attention over the last couple of years yeah um i'll probably first of all say that i'm not the guy who can who can actually do the machine learning and and and, and the technical stuff in the background but um i think ha- having that understanding um of how, of how to use these approaches is, is, is becoming important. Um, it's obviously this this thought, um, and there's some there's more and more work coming out on it now. Basically, suggests that the the data sets that we're handling uh, within sort of professional sport is more non-linear um, as opposed to linear, and therefore the machine learning approaches, um, which almost basically means that you can sort of detects trends um, and links or patterns in that data um, sort of helps us understand the information at a, at a, at a more appropriate level. Um, so uh, Sam may have touched on it in the past, but we, we were interested in how internal load, uh, that being RPE response, relates to the external load, that being GPS. Um, and I think because your internal load is what drives the adaptive response to that external pres- prescription, um, we're interested in the f- in, in the fact that okay, what what typical training variables uh, are related to RPE or the RPE response in a in a squad of forty plus um, team sport athletes? Um, 
And I think from memory of total distance was um, sort of the predominant training variable which which depicted the RP response. But in, in four or five individual players, it was more intensity-related um, markers such as high, high speed running or meters per minute or high, or the, the percentage of high speed running completed per se, uh, in the session um, that related more to their RPE response. So I think it's what it does, it helps you then individualize your, your program more appropriately uh, and cater for the individuals um, as opposed to just treating a squad as sort of one, if you like. Um, I guess there's so many different ways you can use some the the machine learning approaches, but I think that 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 merging of different data sets is is one way to understand sort of what you get from one and how how associated it is with with another. Um, and obviously, training load and injury is one um, sort of stream. Training load and and sort of the well the well being response um, or or the recovery response is another. Um, and then there's obviously the the aim to predict talent or talent development or talent ID if you like or competition outcome so that, so there's a number of different ways people are starting to use sort of machine learning and I think um, the more and more um, time we have sort of become familiar with these approaches I'm not saying that we're going to have amazing uh, people with these amazing skill sets being um, in abundance but just a greater understanding of of the use of them and then we can go into different um, areas such as data science, etc., to to try and attain those skill sets. Mm-hmm. Just to drag it back down to my level, um, for anyone that doesn't know, linear versus non-linear. Would you better just give us a? What do you mean by that? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> now, it's, it's <laughs> basically what what non-linear does is uh, it allows your identification of multiple patterns in, in data, um, where it's obviously linear doesn't allow that linear sort of is limited to being able to explain that x is related to y um whereas whereas that non-linear approach has tries to link all different multiple ways that 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 data may may be related or linked or or trends if you like um so it's almost like this black box it's hiding all these sort of connecting points um which then over time, the more and more data you have, it sort of detects those patterns. Whereas that obviously linear approach, being, um, x explaining y doesn't doesn't necessarily account for that. Like it, good explanation for someone that reacted the way I react. You reacted when I asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, last but not least, something that you're obviously familiar with and that's RPEs and interestingly enough that was something I chatted to uh to Sam about quite a bit was the um the collection or in his opinion non-collection of RPEs um but just to give a bit of an overview of actually setting up a process of um collecting RPEs to enable solid data to be collected then obviously interpreted and, and utilized what kind of um, what kind of process should we be aiming for in a in the kind of gold standard to be able to get the RPEs that we want? Yeah, uh, it's funny. So this is actually a point that we discussed as a, a sports science department yesterday in the club, um, along with along with Heidi Thornton. And I think based on our experience, the bigger the squad you have, the more challenging it is to get some real some real data um or or accurate data you might get 50 60 70 percent of, of training sessions um collected in terms of the rp response but you might be missing 20 30 percent um the bigger the squad you have the more different uh, more sort of different athletes are doing um doing different sessions you might be doing sessions at 6 30 a.m before anybody gets in and you don't realize and um all these different things so i think having a system um whereby uh, there's a bit of ownership on the on the player being able to give you um, the the right response, um, and even sort of connected to that point is the fact that if you um, if you ask a player for their RPE within sort of two three minutes post a training session, probably the most thing that 
the sort of responding to is the pre, the last 10 minute session when they're top, most tired um, as opposed to thinking of the, the session RP in, in, in its whole. Um, so it, it, it's a real hard question to, to answer because it's, it's probably dependent on sort of the, 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 stat, the sort or the resource you have available, the personnel, um, and then sort of what you, I guess, you logistically uh, able to, to do in your own organization. In the past, um, especially when I was at the Bulldogs, um, with the partnership with VU, obviously we were able to leverage off, um, off the university and the, the, the courses there for students. Um, and so what, one thing that, that we ensured there was we had this sort of critical mass of, of personnel and students. And so there was always one or two students purely responsible for that collection of RPE, um, which probably it, it helped both, both the football club in terms of obtaining good information um, and information that we, we know is accurate, um, but also then it feeds then into sort of those research um, projects as well. As as the RPE machine learning one that I, I touched on just previously, um, so I, I think having 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 somebody who's solely responsible for that for that role is is probably the best way, but it's not necessarily in the grand scheme of things um, the best thing for I guess a student's development uh, in becoming a sort of a practitioner. So I think you've got to have a bit of a trade off in terms of the value of that information. Um, how it's informing decisions. Um, is it informing decisions? And if it's not, then come to some sort of uh, conclusion as to okay, what's what, what's a better alternative? So, hopefully that 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 sort of somewhat answers your question. Yeah. So, do you think it it was? Do you think it was useful for the amount of time and effort that was put in and the the students' time that was was given to collect that data? Was it worth the was the juice worth the squeeze? Uh, I think so. In the context of how we used it, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Students who obviously got an honest thesis or 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 a, or a publication out of it, um, and on the flip side, the club have got some good information about not only the the pitch based sessions but all the other training sessions that they were uh, carrying out. Uh, I mean, in AFL, there's a there's a big tendency for for the players to do a lot of what we call cross training, and that might include swimming, boxing, uh, cycling, um, upper body sort of conditioning. Um, so it's a, it's really a good way to sort of understand on a on a bigger scale all the additional load that they've got going through them. Um, and so we found it valuable from that point of view because we'd have a program then that was that that did have a, a number of different. Uh, training modes um, and I think from that we're able to then because it's on that single scale um, and you don't need anything more specialised than a piece of paper and a pen um, you can actually collect some information about that session about how hard it was um, so I think for me yes it, it, it was it was valuable and it did inform some decisions in terms of training modifications and stuff um, I said but that that was specific to that that time and and, and that that place. Then um, that doesn't mean to say that it's the same for for everybody else, though. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I'm just going to end by thanking you for your time. But just before I do let you go, where's the best place for people to get a little bit more information about you, the work you've done in the past, and any work that is coming up in the future? Yeah, no worries. Well. Um, I've also got a, a Twitter account, which um, I haven't been as active on there recently as what I have been. Um, through there, anybody can sort of direct message me and I'd, I'd be happy to, to, to talk offline with them um, about anything. Um, so, yeah. And what's your Twitter That's, handle, John? Uh, John Bartlett66 from memory. Excellent. And then ResearchGate for any research... Papers? Yeah, yeah. I actually, just recently updated that. So, um, all, all my current research on training load stuff, sleep, um, nutrition, etc. That, that that that's all up on uh, ResearchGate as well. 
Excellent. And I'll put a link to that on the site and on, on Twitter as well that people can jump on there and have a little scout around of, of the stuff you've been doing, the stuff you're going to do in the future. Okay, brilliant. But thank you very much for giving up your time and uh, really appreciate your insights into what you guys are doing. And uh, thank you very much. No, th- thanks, Rob. Th- thanks for having me on and hopefully it provides some, some interesting insights. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, mate. Speak soon. Thank you, mate. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 220 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with John. Firstly, massive thanks to John for giving up his time. Secondly, huge thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to I Measure You, Fatigue Science and St. Mary's University for supporting and sponsoring this podcast today. The podcast could not run without these guys, so really appreciate their support. So got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks, couple of part ones. Uh, and a couple of part twos. Hope you have a fantastic new year and I will chat to you in 2019.